Christianity's coming, right? A couple weeks away, right? The Lord has come. Uh, this holiday that we uh, that we love and care for, you know, it's been morphed over the years into something weird. It's been morphed over the years that the idea that God gives gifts, we have taken and just kind of made it uh, crazy, commercially crazy. Uh, never seen more disappointed children in the world than Christmas morning, right? When they wake up and $9,000 worth of toys they wanted turned into like $50 worth because that's what mom and dad had, right? Everything just kind of goes bonkers after that. We are trying to remember the reason for that. And the reason for uh, why we celebrate and why we take those times to slow down and remember, to remember God, to remember family, to remember the things that are of utmost importance. And this, the most sobering thing about all of it is you and I need to understand like those days are running out, right? The days to see family, hang out, love each other, enjoy each other's company, those days are running out. And you and I need to uh, live life forward in a way that we don't have to look backward and be upset of things that we missed. Like I want us with the Christmas season and Thanksgiving this time of year to remember the things that are of utmost importance so that a year or two from now we're not looking back with regrets that we should have done things differently. So make sure as you walk into this season you and I remember what it's here for. This morning's sermon is t- uh, titled Christmas Seeds Planted. It's going to be this morning of uh, it's going to be the title of this sermon this morning. You know when you were a kid you remember the catalog that come in the mail? Right? And, I, and some of you all right now have no clue what I'm talking about, right? Phone book, what is that? Like you've seen the yellow bags, but you've never actually reached in and found out, oh, they still throw out phone books. That's amazing. Um, you know, the catalog would come and stuff would get circled, and stuff you really wanted would get circled more than once, right? Maybe with an arrow, right? Maybe something like that. And you'd be all pumped up about that and all that stuff would happen. You know, Christmas uh, for you and I, like we don't get a wish list. You know what you and I had? We had a needs list. We had a needs list. And as you get older, um, one, of the, one of the hardest things about life is as you get older and that wisdom starts to pour in when you actually see what there is to see, life gets a little bit harder. Like how many of you wish you could go back to the mentality you had when you were 16 or 18, right? Life was good. Everything was optimistic, right? And then all of a sudden you turned 30 and some stuff started to crack and Maybe there's a little gray hair that wasn't there before, right? And then you turn 40. Then you turn like, you know, a certain age and you start opening up the obituaries and you're like, oh, wow, there's, okay. Wow, okay, right? That's what happens. That's life. God operating in the realm of this idea of Christmas was him giving us our needs list. So what do we got going on? What do you and I have? Well, we've got a world that is broken. We've got a world that's broken. It just is what it is. And the foolishness and the way some people deal with it drives me crazy. To pretend everything is good or to pretend that it's going to be good or to sell that as some kind of Christian philosophy is so dangerous. It's, it's hellish. Because when people bite into that apple five minutes later, they're figuring out this was a lie. And then they throw out the baby with the bathwater. This is all insane. I was told I was going to be healthy and wealthy and my problems were going to go away. What just happened? Well, you were sold something foolish. You see, this world is broken. And if it's not the world that's the problem, then it's my dirty soul. I got my own issues. 
And you and I as Christians need to, need to remember. We need to constantly, daily remind ourselves that most of my problems are caused by my dirty soul, not the world that's outside of me. Not my circumstances, not my government, not my job, right? Not my children. They're not causing my problems. Most of my problems are caused because my soul is dirty. It needs to be cleaned up. With regards to God, it needs to be saved. It needs to be clean and sanctified and set apart. But even after that, it needs to be uh, brought into subjection to the Word of God and lived out that way. Like this is an ongoing process. You, you get saved immediately. If you were to die after that, you're going to heaven. We understand that. But every day after that, you and I are trying to grow and be more like Jesus. So even after salvation, most of our problems are still uh, started within us. And so you and I need to deal with that. But there's so much evil in the world. Evil would be the idea of sin, wickedness, mankind's moral failings. Like sin is what? A good News Club has a little thing for kids to understand. Sin is anything I think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes God cry. I'm like, well, I would have said anything that breaks God's law and breaks God's heart. It's pretty good, isn't it? I know how to deal with them grade school kids. But what is sin? Anything we think, say, or do that breaks the law of God and goes against the character of God. And that's what you and I are dealing with daily. We're dealing with it out in the world. You're dealing with it with people you work with, people you love. Like we're all dealing with that. We're all broken. We have this needs list and part of it is you and I are a broken mess. What's the other part? Well, much is groaning. Uh, Let me read to you Romans chapter 8 real quick. You don't have to turn there. We will be in Isaiah 61 as we finish the sermon today if you want to read that passage and if you want to put your finger in Job chapter 9. So we're going to go to those two passages and read them in their entirety. I want to read you a little piece of this because I think sometimes you and I forget. Um, I had a buddy once explain it to me like every time he saw an animal hit beside the road. Now, he could give or take people, right? Whatever. Whatever. Animals, he was an animal lover, right? Anything furry, nasty, stinky, he loved it, wanted to take care of it. Anytime he saw one hit by the road, this is the passage that come to his mind. And that's stuck with me forever. Because there's sinful things, and then there's the idea that the world you and I live in is groaning. Romans chapter 8 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Somebody say, if you know the Lord, me. Right? Us. Creation is waiting for that moment. Creation is waiting for you and I to be back in control of the world as it was supposed to be. So what's going on while it is waiting for that? Well, for the creation was subjected to uh, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When the freedom of the glory of the children of God, when you and I are experiencing that in its fullness, creation will be set free. There'll be no more animals dying. There'll be no more cancer. No more carnivorous animals eating each other. There'll be no more hit beside the road, laying there suffering or dying. There'll be no more storms. 
There'll be no more tornadoes, no hurricanes. Why? All of those things are pictures of something is wrong. What's wrong is you and I are not set back in our place of stewards in the world properly. Who subjected the world to this futility? Adam did when he agreed with Satan over God. Everything after that, thorns, thistles, the, the sweat of your brow. There will be work in heaven, but there will be no sweat, no toil, no frustration. You'll wake up every day and have the job of your dreams, right? It'll be fun. It'll be uh, just a blast. Gardening, tending animals, exploring the universe. There's a lot of awesome things that are going to go on. Most of all, you and I will be in fellowship with the God of the universe. We'll be enjoying what he has to offer. Uh, for in this hope, let's see, in verse 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have uh, the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Meaning, if we already had it, it wouldn't be faith. Right? If we already had it, it wouldn't be faith. You and I are looking and longing for it. And in that hope, we get up the next day and we take the next step that we need to take. So much of the world around us is groaning. This Christmas needs list also deals with creation. God loves creation. He loves the world. He loves the physical world. He created it perfect. And you and I are going to experience it perfect. But see, part of Christmas is the idea of fixing that too. It's not just about souls and salvation. It's about putting back together. The last piece is everything is disconnected. The last piece of this needs list is everything is disconnected. You and I are disconnected from God. You and I are disconnected from each other. What does sin do? Right? What's a relationship to sinful people? Right? Any relationship you have. Between, between you and anybody else but Jesus is two sinful people trying to work at it, get along, love each other, go in the same direction, hook arms, and drag some other people with you. That is every relationship you and I are in. God, the Christmas needs list, is working to fix that. Because what happens when you become a part of a church? You get a whole new group of people to love and attach to. Sometimes you're doing life with those people. What happens when you marry properly? Right? Don't be unequally yoked. Young ones that are working toward that direction, remember that it is a warning and it's a promise. What happens when that happens? There is a more connection than there would have been. There is a piece of heaven coming to earth and fixing that, but ultimately you and I are still disconnected from everybody. We're disconnected from God. We're disconnected from man. We're disconnected from nature. Even more so now with all the stuff that we have, but we are really disconnected from nature God has given us to enjoy and to be a part of, right? What happens when you get a nice breath of fresh air? What happens, like how many people see? I could say the mountains, but there wouldn't be nearly as many people like that. How about the beach? How about the beach, right? How about the mountains? How about a hiking trail, right? What the last time you ran barefoot across the grass? Like there's something intimate there between us and nature, and it is disconnected right now. It's groaning, it's dangerous, right, at times, and you and I are, are desiring to be a part of it, but we're always apprehensive. And then there's a disconnect between you and I and even ourselves. 
There's nothing worse in the world than a sinful person just being sinful. Just creating chaos. They're hurting spouse or children or brothers or sisters or mom or dad. They're hurting their co-workers. And what are they ultimately doing to themselves? They are creating isolation. They are pulling away from even themselves. They're not any good to themselves. They're not helping themselves. There is nothing worse in the world than watching a sinful person be sinful. And all of that is because you and I need a Savior. We need God to interact. We need this Christmas list to be fulfilled in order to put these things back right. Me with myself, me with nature, me with you, and me with God. So there are Christmas seeds, right? We're going we're gonna to do some uh, Christmas uh, reading here later. But our Christmas needs list turns into what? Christmas seeds. God has planted some seeds. He planted them all the way back in creation. He planted them, uh, as we read in Genesis, even in the garden. When our mother and father turn their back on God and believe the enemy over God himself, what does God do immediately is he plants a seed of hope. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, you shall bruise his, uh, his foot and he shall bruise your head. And so even in the garden, God plants this seed that a redeemer is coming. Now, why would he say seed of woman? Born a woman, right? We're going to see born of a virgin. That's part of it. Now, this is spectacular, and I don't know how God unwinds this in history or how he unwinds it in the future to come, right? Who bit the fruit first? Who was charged with the sin? Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what are you doing? Eve was deceived, Adam sinned. If they had both willfully disobeyed, where would the Savior have come from? The Lord operates in a way, it's just grace upon grace upon grace. She interacts with the enemy. She believes the enemy. She takes and she bites and she eats and she even entices her husband to do it too. And yet in all of that, God rules deception. And then with Adam, he says sin. And then just moments later, when this corruption and this curse takes place, he looks at Satan and says, you're going to crush his heel, you're going to bite his heel, and he's going to crush your head. The seed of woman. Because we know from Romans, Adam's seed is tainted. All of my children are sinners. Why? Because I am a sinner. They got a big honking chin and my sin. Right? You're welcome, children. Genetically, it was given. And Adam's seed, just like I got from my father, was given to them. You see, there is a Christmas seed planted even in the first story that God is not going to allow you and I to die in our sin the way we should have. Or he's not going to crush everything and start over. How about Genesis? Well, when you get to uh, Genesis uh, 17, when you get to 28, and I believe that first one is supposed to be 12, God looks at Abram and says, I'm going to bless those that bless you and i'm going to bless the whole earth um i don't know if there's any jews in here right now but if not you better be really glad that promise says the whole earth because you and i were brought into that blessing because god promised abram i'm going to bless you and that individual is going to bless the whole earth 
Jesus came. And here you and I are holding his name, hanging on to his promises. The Messiah is coming to bless all people. Nation, race, time, and place, he blesses all of them. Throughout all of human history, even before he was born, God was blessing other nations. God was showing his grace and his mercy. And initially, uh, Israel as firstborn uh, to God was going to be the one that was going to deliver that message, but they failed. They failed. They couldn't take it to the other nations and keep it in its purity. They ended up becoming like the other nations. Or in the time of Jesus, they were so frustrated about being like the other nations that they become insular and they ran away. And then they were totally different from all the other nations. You and I have seen this in Christian history too. Some people get too close to the world, become like it, and are no good. Others deem it necessary not to be anywhere near it and then make themselves no good. Genesis 17, Genesis 28. God is telling that the whole world is going to be blessed. All nations, all tribes. That is one, that's why one day in Revelation it says every tribe and tongue. Every tribe and tongue. Listen, there's no room for racism in God's church. Anybody reading five minutes of Scripture knows that you and I have more related to Christians that really believe around the world that you will never meet, that you can't speak the same language, and that you look nothing like. You and I have more in common with them than some of us do with the people that live in our own house. They are family, and we are to love them accordingly. There is no room for racism in God's church. The family of God is going to be your family for all of eternity. And many of them are going to look nothing like you and I. And just a newsflash, in case you're looking at all the Jesus pictures around Christmas time, any of them that are a little too pale with a little blush on the cheek, that's not him. Right? You and I serve a Jewish rabbi. Dark-skinned, dark hair, 5'6 to 5'8-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. He didn't look white. He wasn't European. Can we all agree on that? All right. So when your kids see that picture and they're like, well, who's that? I don't know. Don't even look, right? Might be the guy from Star Wars. That, that's funny on Facebook. You ever seen that one? With Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? And the lady's like, she's got it set up like it's Jesus on her mantle. Come on. All right. All right, whatever. That's one of the funniest things. That's one of the funniest things on Facebook. Like, Mama's got Obi-Wan Kenobi on her mantle thinking it's Jesus, but it's not. It's a Star Wars character. How about some more Christmas seeds? Isaiah 11.10. In, let me see if I can find, I got to find Isaiah 42. I marked all these in my Bible. Give me a second. Isaiah 11.10 says this, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations, the nations. That's good news. That's good news. Are you listening? Not the nation, not the Jewish nation. Who is going to stand before him? The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Do you desire rest? Ultimately, it will be in that kingdom with King Jesus. Until then, he gives you and I rest in the middle of chaotic situations. He gives you and I rest now. His peace is given to you and I until we are standing in his kingdom. Now this is Isaiah chapter 11. This is not New Testament, so don't mess that up. This is Old Testament. 
This is when the Jewish nation was supposed to be God's people and everybody else was pagan, secular, horrible, going to hell. That's what was supposed to be there. And yet God was already planting these seeds. He had given the nation of of Israel a job and they couldn't fulfill it. So Jesus is the one that does. How about Isaiah 42? It says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not be quenched. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Again, you see a picture of the idea that even the world is waiting. The world is waiting. The coastlands are going to wait for his law. These Christmas seeds are about the world, not just the nation. The Messiah is coming to gather the nations and bring them rest. He does what Israel could not. Gentle justice, what the first time through, though. Isaiah 61 is a wonderful passage, but Isaiah 61 brings some other things into the mix. It's what you and I, it's the reason why you and I are here to warn people of what is coming. Because the lamb that was led to slaughter has come and gone. The lion of the tribe of Judah is next. You and I don't want to meet him nose to nose as adversaries. That's what we're begging people to understand. But right now he is bringing this gentle justice uh, to us. He is bringing people into the kingdom of God. He is building his kingdom. He is, he is basically fulfilling the idea of when he prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is bringing that about. He's being, bringing that about by building the church. So right now we have this gentle justice. Salvation is free. It doesn't cost a thing. But it takes commitment. You and I handing over the life, the throne on our heart, we give it up. It is not cheap, but it is free. And so this is gentle justice, but there will come a time when it won't be so gentle. How about Isaiah 53? What does it have to say to us? Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So what is the Messiah coming for? The Messiah is coming to be familiar with all of our sufferings. My frailty, my frustrations, my feelings that are out of whack, right? And the need for family, freedom, and a future. Why is Jesus coming? Because according to this passage, he is going to get familiar with my frailties. Now, I've told you all one of the promises or one of the, one of the most painful groans in all of the Old Testament is uttered by Job. And we know the story of Job. I want to read to you uh, one of Job's replies. Job chapter 9 is one of the most fascinating uh, passages in all of Scripture. I want to read it to you this morning because I want you to understand um, you and I live life with Jesus in view. Job was living about the time of Abram or Abraham. Lost all of his stuff. Lost his children. Lost his health. Lost the respect of even his wife. And all of that stuff happened in a matter of days. Now, I know so many of us have experienced loss, but to have it all happen that fast, what do you think that did to his soul? What do you think that did to his heart? The idea that he was still living is by itself a miracle because most of us would not have made it through 24 hours of dealing with all of that 
in that amount of time. So one of Job's cries is Job chapter 9 says this. Then Job answered and said, remember I told you all of his friends that came to visit him, they were really great friends as long as they sat there, grieved and cried. When they started talking, they got in trouble. Here's Job's response to one of his friends. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. They were talking to him about how God is righteous and how he is holy and how Job must have something wrong. There's something wrong with you. There's sin in your life. You need to fix this. You need to repent. You're a broken person. You're a horrible person. Like that's what his friends are telling him as they banter back and forth throughout the book. So Job responds in Job chapter 9. Truly I know that it's so. What's so? God's righteous and I'm a mess. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Verse 5. He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place? And its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who, sets, uh, who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? If you're circling passages in your Bible, circle that one and write Jesus beside it. Because who walked on the water? Who calmed the sea? Two utterances here. Two prophecies being made. Verse 9. Who made the bear and Orion? Arcturus and, and Orion, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. If you're circling that, if you're circling your Bible, circle that one and write like chapter 37 because God answers that question to Job and it's amazing. Who does great things before searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Verse 11, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away who can turn him back. Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Verse 17, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Some of you all need to take notes on how to deal with your grief like Job does. Talk to God about it. Don't hide it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't church it up. Job talks like this the whole book, and God never says he sins. That's powerful to the glory and the goodness of the God you and I serve. You have loss. You have frustration. You have something going on. You take it to him properly. He already knows what you're feeling. You might as well open it up. Let the infection come out. Verse 17, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. He is talking some hard stuff. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Say, man, my kid has some really hard questions. Answer them. There's access there. Job just says wicked people run things, and God allows it. Answer their questions. My days are swifter than a runner. 
They flee away, verse 25. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye? Yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. And you get to verse 31. How much pain is in this passage? Put yourself there. You lost all your stuff. He was a rich, wealthy man. He was a godly man. You lost all your stuff. You lost all your children. Ten gone. One disaster, all gone. You still had your health until the enemy come back. Didn't have your health. Your wife looks at you and says, curse God and die. Just be done. Are you still hanging on to your faith? What are you doing? Curse him, die, be done. Out of that, you get the first 31 verses of Job chapter 9. One prophecy I've already given you, who dances on the waves, who walks across the waves, you all know the answer to that one. But boy, how about this one, verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come together trial, to come together at trial. Verse 33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. There is no arbiter between us. Job cries out because he is totally human and God is totally God and he is broken and he is angry and he is hurt and God doesn't understand. He says there's no one to put their hand on both of us. It is a prophecy for who to come. Mm. Woo, Merry Christmas. Let him take his rod away from me, verse 34, and let not dread of him terrify me, then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. The most powerful passages in all the Old Testament dealing with grief, dealing with frustration, dealing with the harm, dealing with what life is doling out, and there is Job speaking real talk, real pain, real hurt. And at the end of the day, he utters one of the most amazing prophecies. No, heaven, no, no worldly mind could ever comprehend the idea or come up with the idea that God would take on human flesh and come to this world. Why? So he could answer Job's cry. Jesus comes and he takes on flesh. And what does he do with that? He gets familiar with all my frailties. He is tempted like we are, yet without sin. You serve a Savior that understands how hard it is to live this life. You serve a Savior that understands how hard it is to be betrayed by a loved one. He understands. All of them left Him. You understand. He understands what it's like to come face to face with the devil himself. And shoo him away like a coward. And then in that victory, in all of those things, he gives you and I access to do the same kind of things. And so when you cry and you weep and you wail and you walk into God's throne room, you and I have, what's the New Testament call him? A perfect high priest, meaning Jesus was always perfect. What he becomes for you and I is a perfect high priest, meaning he understands all the things we're going through. You and I will never get to heaven and say, but you didn't understand, Lord. Temptation was tough. You didn't understand, Lord, how hard it was to live that life and to have a good attitude. You didn't understand. 
the life of Christ, the Christmas story, blows that out of the water for all of eternity. You and I don't serve a God that is aloof. We serve a God that came to be a part of this life. What else does he do? Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Number chapter 21 and John 3 says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The Messiah will be sacrificed. He will be the sacrifice needed to make peace with God. And to do what? Bring peace and healing to me. Jesus is the sacrifice that makes peace with God and then brings peace and healing to me and you. See, there's two parts to that equation. Like I said, you and I are disconnected even from our very selves. We understand the disconnect with God. You and I don't understand the idea that we are actually fighting and struggling with ourselves the entire time. Listen, if you turned out that sinful you and you just let it loose, not only would nobody else be able to deal with it, but you wouldn't be able to deal with it. It would drive you crazy. Once you had 30 seconds to figure out what was going on and what you were doing, it would grieve you deeply to be that evil and that horrible. That peace is in all of us. Jesus comes to rectify that too. He comes to bring me healing. Not only can I look backward and know that he has washed all of those things, cleansed all of those things, paid for all of those things, I can look forward in the hope that I never do them again. I can look forward in the hope that I will be more like Jesus tomorrow than I was today. He has done all of those things as a Christmas gift you and I needed Numbers 21 is the story where the people were grumbling against God. Remember, and the snakes come out and bite them, and they're dying. Remember the bronze serpent? Why are, there, why are there bronze serpents on all the medical stuff? It's a picture from Numbers 21. And God said, make a bronze serpent, wrap it on a pole, hold it up. Anybody that looks at it in faith will be healed. Jesus comes a couple thousand years later and says, anybody that looks at the Son of Man, held up, lifted up like a curse of God, will be healed, whole, saved. He has come to be that. How about this one? For I will pour out water. Isaiah 44, 3 says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty thirsty land and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is Old Testament. The Messiah will come that he may pour out the spirit onto you and I. The helper in John 17 is what it's called. The Holy Spirit. Jesus has come to pour his spirit out on us that you and I can be the temple of God Almighty. Do you know that you are the temple of God? You know the work of Jesus is why that's possible? Because you and I are seen as perfect. We're seen as blameless, as sinless. We're seen that way. Are we that way? No. Somehow the grace of God figures that out. But you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit residing in you, pushing you, prodding you, uh, bringing you to conviction, telling you to love, telling you to look like Jesus. That is all a part of what Jesus did. How about Jeremiah 31, 31? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Messiah is coming to make a new and better covenant, to fulfill the old one and open the new one. Messiah has come. What happened with the old covenant? What do we figure out with the old covenant? Who could keep it? Somebody say, no one. (laughs) Who did keep it? Jesus. So was the old covenant good for us or was it bad for us? It was an incomplete picture of what God wanted to do. 
Okay, you go into that Old Testament story. God's making a covenant with Abram. Do you remember that story? God's making a covenant with Abram. One of those moments when God says, I'm going to bless you. Those that bless you, I will bless. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. God's making a covenant with Abram. Do you remember what you walked down, what it was called when you made a covenant in the Old Testament? You walked down the what? The blood trail. If you've ever sat in a Paul class, you've got this one good. You walked down the blood trail. What was the blood trail? Well, it was an assortment of animals that were poured apart. And they weren't having a barbecue. Right? Pulled apart, blood trail, you're making a covenant, me with you, you with me, and we're going to walk this together. And why are we walking it together? Because if I break covenant, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. How about that one? Right? That's the blood trail. That's the covenant. God makes that with Abram. Do you remember the rest of the story, though? Who actually walked it? God with himself. Flaming torch, smoking pot. What happens to Abram? God says, sit this one out. Sit it out. You can't, you can't fulfill this. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abram, and then I am going to step in and take your place. And God walks the blood trail for Abram. Fiery torch, smoking pot. Now listen to me, because this gets a little bit deep. I don't know which side of that is the representation of Jesus, but did Abraham keep his side of the covenant? Did the nation of Israel? So if you go back to that covenant, somebody has to what? Somebody has to pay. Oh, come on, man. If that don't make your hair stand up. Come on. Somebody has to pay. So God, instead of making Abram pay or the nation of Israel pay or you and I pay, God walks the blood trail with Spirit and Son. Like, I don't know what the representation here, but Jesus is a part of that. And Jesus walks the blood trail. So when it's time to pay, God dies. What? Because nobody else could do it. Like, this is all Old Testament stuff. Man, the Lord is too faithful and too good and too loving and too kind. Jesus steps forward and says, send me, I'll go. He comes, he lives, and he dies. The mockery, the beating, the embarrassment, the punishment that should have been ours. You and I should have been the ones stripped naked, mocked, and beaten to a pulp. You and I should have been the ones that wouldn't have even lived through the beating, much less the carrying of the cross and the crucifixion. Do you understand that should have been you and it should have been me, and then it would have been followed with eternal separation? It wasn't done in nine hours. It wouldn't have been done for me and you in nine hours. That was our road to walk, the Via Della Rosa. That was yours and it was mine. And God in eternity past come up with a plan to fix it because he knew you and I could not walk the blood trail. Abraham couldn't do it. Daniel couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. Matthew couldn't do it. None of them could do it. Paul couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The last one, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. These Christmas seeds, man, I'm just going to read the the last part to you first, and then we'll read through the passage. They can come to play. There's one mission going on in this world. There are two two moments to behold. One we've seen, one is coming, and there is an everlasting kingdom. One king, one kingdom. You're not the king, neither am I. We're building the kingdom. He is the king. 
We are one family, and there are billions and billions and billions of gifts. Every bit of grace you and I are under today, that breath that you're taking right now, that heart beating right now, that sin that you didn't get full punishment for, that sin I didn't get full punishment for, that blessing of relationship, the blessing of this church, the blessing of your bills being paid, the blessing of health, all of these things are just the billions and billions of blessings that God is doling out because of what Jesus has done and the covenant he made with his son. Isaiah 61, we're still in the Old Testament. Jesus is not even born yet, and the Lord has given us seeds of what's to come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach uh, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What happens when Jesus reads that passage in the gospel? Because the next part of the verse says what? He's going to bring vengeance of God. What happens in the gospel when Jesus opens up that scroll and reads it? When he finishes half of that verse, he rolls the scroll back up. And he hands it back and he starts to teach. Off of his ministry and his mission that he was doing then. Because the next part gets really bad for everyone. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, he hands it back. And the day, and he looks at the crowd and says, this passage has been fulfilled here today. That's what he he tells the crowd in the Gospels. This passage is being fulfilled right now. Rolls it up, gives it back. This passage has been fulfilled. The very next part says what? And the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus' mission was one mission, but it comes in two parts. The first time there was no vengeance, it was mercy and grace. He blessed those that persecuted him. He blessed those that cursed him. He prayed for those that was ramming the spear in his side. And I believe one of those prayers paid the dividend of somebody getting saved. I believe you and I are going to shake hands and hug one day the Roman soldier that ran that spear through Jesus' side. Because Jesus prays out the Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And that Roman soldier takes that spear and runs it into the side of Christ. And then one of them speaks up in a couple minutes and says, Surely this was the Son of God. Like, I think you and I are going to handshake and hug a brother one day that helped kill Jesus. And he gets to this passage in Isaiah, what we would call 61, what he would call the prophet Isaiah. He rolls it out, he reads to there, and he rolls it back up. Why? Because it wasn't the day of vengeance yet. It was the day of grace to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they may be called oaks of righteousness. Man, don't you want to be called an oak of righteousness? I can't wait for that day when it's actually true. The planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will rejoice. 
in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I am faithfully, uh, I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them. And they are an offspring of the Lord uh, has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This Old Testament. Promises made. The birth of Christ is the start of the promise to be opened up for everyone to actually see what God is doing. As they come this morning to play, here's my question to you. Do you see it? Do you care to see it? Do you care to be a part of what God is doing? He has made you promises. Every blessing you and I are receiving right now is because He is grace filled and merciful and he's pouring it out on you and I the Lord is good this world is hard this world is vicious and vile it is painful at times to deal with you and I can sit there like Job but you know what happens with you and I we get to look in reverse and we get to see Jesus you and I get a physical representation of what he longed for are you leaning into that like Christmas is that's the gift Jesus is the gift. You and I pass out things and love on each other because it's a small reflection of what God is doing. That is the gift. Jesus is the gift. And all of these things in the Old Testament that people were begging for, that they needed, that they needed to be saved, they needed to be cleansed, they were looking at themselves and they knew what a mess they were and they needed something to fix it. And God said, I've got just the fix. He's on the way. And you and I celebrate it now every December. Enjoy the company of family. We enjoy good food. But most of all, you and I need to remember, what is it here for? Because God gives gifts first. And he is, he's fulfilling, he's checking the boxes of that need list you and I have. You don't have a want list. We weren't that close. We had a needs list. God, you got to come through or I'm in trouble. Stay with me this morning. If you need something, you come and you pray. Get ready for this season, man. We're at the beginning of December. you got a lot of days left to make some things right, to work through some stuff, to love some people that need what you have to offer.